Well, church family, good morning. So good to see you guys as we gather for worship again on the Lord's Day. Here at Palm Sunday, the beginning of this holiest of weeks, we get the opportunity to begin our service together this morning, just in a very unique, special time of, of worship here as we observe the ordinance of baptism together. You know, I was thinking about this moment this morning just in preparation and I was reminded that this moment of baptism, that for us as a church family, it's a reminder of a couple of things in particular. Number one, most importantly, it is a reminder of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an outward visible display of what the Lord has already done inwardly in the heart of the one, in the life of the one who comes to be baptized this morning. We are reminded that in the gospel, uh, it is not the water that saves us, but it is the blood, the precious blood of Christ that saves us. And for the one who comes to be baptized on this Lord's day, it's a declaration that he has died to himself, that he has died to his way of life. He has died to sin and now, by the grace of God, the cleansing blood of Christ has been raised to walk in this newness of life. And so it's just such a blessed and glorious celebration of the gospel. But it's, always, it's also a second reminder. There's a second remembrance that we have. And church, I want to say this to you just by way of encouragement to you. We are reminded this morning that when we, the people of God, when we take seriously the call of God to engage our coworkers, to invite them to church, when we take seriously the call of God to come alongside of, of those within the body of Christ, to share the gospel, to repeatedly uh, tell people about the saving gospel of Christ, and when we take seriously the call to come alongside people and disciple them, that church, the Lord really does save His people. He really does do the work through you, the hands and feet of Christ. He really does do the work of bringing His people to Himself. And so for a thousand reasons, we have opportunity to worship, to celebrate, to remember and to give thanks. So let's worship together as we baptize our brother Matt this morning. Those of you that have been a part of Faith Family over the last eight months or so, you have gotten to know Matt. You've heard a little bit about his story. If you were here last week, uh, we talked some together about what the Lord has done in, uh, in Matt's life. Uh, we were just talking kind of back here a few minutes ago, and Matt just made mention that uh, a year ago, something like this was not even on the radar, right? Wasn't even thinking about the things of God. When Matt and I had some opportunity to talk, uh, his testimony was, I, when I first came to Faith Family, I didn't know about the God of the Bible. I knew about the God of the world, but I didn't know about the God of the Bible. I didn't know about the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But through, again, your, your efforts to love Matt, to invite him, to engage him, the Lord, bit by bit, week by week, month by month, has been working in Matt's heart, bringing him to a place where he has understood his need for a Savior, counted the cost even to say, I am ready and willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ all the days of my life. And so, Matt, it is our pleasure, our joy, 
to be with you in this moment. Matt, let me ask just some questions here for us this morning. Matt, have you come to a point in your life where you have understood the Gospel and have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation? Matt, are you declaring before God and before this church family this morning that you have turned away from your sin into Christ? And Matt, have you this morning before God and these people, are you committing that you will follow the Lord Jesus Christ all the days of your life? And Matt, based on God's grace on your life, your profession of faith, it is my joy to baptize you, my brother, this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with Him in baptism and raised to walk in a newness of life. Love you, man. Church family, as the Lord Jesus entered Jerusalem on that final Sunday of His life, He entered to the cries of Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna meaning save now. And we have seen a glorious testimony this morning of God's salvific work. Let's stand together as Alex leads us in worship together this morning. Raises, rising, eyes are turning to you. Return to you. Open, stirring, hearts are yearning for you. We long for you.
in your presence all our fears are washed away when we see you we find strength to face the day in your presence all our fears are washed away they're washed away Hosanna Hosanna you are the God who saves us worthy of all our praises Hosanna Hosanna come have your way among us Come with trumpet sound 
scripture reading as we've been doing through Hebrews, but we're going to take a step out of Hebrews today to look in the gospel of Luke. If you'll turn to Luke 19, verses 28 through 44, as we're going to look at Luke's depiction of the triumphal entry. Excuse me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing the cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon the other, another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, blessed is he who comes In the name of the Lord, peace and glory in the highest. Lord, you are deserving of all glory and adoration and majesty that we can bestow, and more so. Lord, the gift of your Son, the righteous one, the only one who could pay the price that we owed, Lord, you freely gave him on our behalf. 
Lord, knowing the extent with which our sins separated you, it was no small cost to send your son and shed his blood for us. And so, Lord, we are so thankful. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gift that is there in your son. He truly does reign at your right hand. And Father, just as we are just vessels of clay, Father, just like this donkey, God, I pray that, Lord, when you say the Lord has use of you, need of your use, God, I pray that our hearts be prepared for obedience, to walk in the ways that you would have us to go, trusting what it is that you have for us to do, knowing that, as David mentioned, we get to be the hands and feet. I pray that that is our heart this morning. And Lord, at the close there, as we read Jesus' heart breaking over Jerusalem, Lord, I pray that our hearts break For those who are lost, those who are suffering, those who are separated from you, Lord, that there not be any among us who are in that place, Father, but that, Lord, we take your word, your gospel, your good news of Christ coming to the world. And I pray that for us, Lord, in this this holy week, as we set forth, Lord, in this time of worship, Today and as we leave here, Father, that our hearts be set on the love that you have for us and the love and the opportunity we have to go and tell others of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue in worship. Bearing our sins, my Redeemer is there. 
hands stretched out on a tree and took the nails for me and living he loves me dying he saved me buried he carried my sins far away and rising he
Christ, our only hope in life and death. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Last month we looked at 2 Corinthians 7.10 about godly repentance and godly sorrow over our sin. That it produces life without regret. But sorrow in accordance with the world produces death. And so this morning we're looking at 4.10, sorry, 4.12 of Acts. You should be familiar with this. I hope you've got it memorized, but we'll go over it this month. 
that He is our only hope. In view of all the world has to offer in Christ and in Him alone is there life, is there hope, is there promise. And so, repeat with me this one verse of Acts 4.12 out loud. We'll go through it once and then we'll pray. Okay? You ready? Take that as a yes. Here we go. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 So in this very brief sermon that Peter gives, on the heels of the anger of the leadership as they have healed someone on the Sabbath, And Peter says, your anger is not over the healing, but it is over Christ whom you crucified. The Son of God, who has been given singularly as a means of grace. There is no other name. There is no other person. There is no other way. There is no other end in life but Christ. That we would be saved, that we would be forgiven, and that we would have life. It is only Him. It's my hope and prayer that you know Christ this morning, that He is your hope, that you have trusted fully in the Son, that we are celebrating this morning bittersweet as He is going forward to the cross to suffer and to die, but out of God's good pleasure that He would die, that our sins would be upon Him for one time He died, that they would be done away with. Glory to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you are gracious, that you have been gracious, and that you have extended mercy to us in Christ, that we would be forgiven of our sin, and that it has been given to us that there is only one name. By no other name will we be saved but by the name of Christ. Lord, may we not be complacent. You have tarried for a time. But just because you have tarried for what feels like a long time to us, it doesn't entail that you will not come back tomorrow or in a week or in a year or within our lifetime. And so, Father, if anyone here is complacent, if anyone here is setting aside, looking forward to a future time when they're done living for their sin and self, when they're done accomplishing the things they want contrary to you, Lord, may, would you, would you shatter that false hope that all is in their control? That they would recognize that it is only in Christ that they can be saved and that they need not wait for that. God, would you call people to you? Would you call your people to yourself? And so, Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you that you sent your Son to save us. And that as the people gathered around him rejoicing in the God who saves, that they did not understand how he was going to save. And that the way you saved your people is far better than any human conception of how you would bring salvation for your people. Not a conquering king, but one who came to suffer and to give his life, to dethrone the enemy and to destroy death. We thank you and ask God you to be with us and lead us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Amen. Church family, let me invite you to take God's Word and join me this morning in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 20. This morning, Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. Today, next Sunday, we'll step out of our study through Matthew's Gospel, obviously, to think about this Sunday, the final week of the Lord Jesus' life. I remind you that on Friday of this week, we'll gather for a Good Friday service to focus our hearts and our minds, our affections on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next Sunday, we'll culminate this week of of celebration on Resurrection Sunday together. My hope this morning is just to begin setting our hearts and minds uh, upon this week, um, all that we're remembering, all that we're celebrating, all that is true for us because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because He went to Jerusalem, because He died on the cross, rose from the dead. So Luke chapter 20 this morning, verses 9 to 18, is our text together. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that final Sunday of his life, what we now call Palm Sunday, he rides into what is essentially a pretty volatile, mixed bag of plans and hopes and dreams. There's all kinds of people in the city of Jerusalem here, especially at the Passover, and all of them have various plans about what they're going to do that week, primarily what they're going to do with Jesus. There are varied hopes uh, gathered in Jerusalem that week, hopes about Jesus, hopes about getting rid of Rome. Uh, there are various dreams that, that just are, people are longing for as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And so it's, it's not surprising to us then that as he rides in into this very swollen city that these cries of Hosanna, blessed is the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's no surprise because the anticipation for this moment has been building. It's been building as Jesus has been making his way throughout the land of Israel, as he has been teaching, as he has been performing the miracles, healing the sick and raising the dead. Crowds have been flocking to him and now they follow him and greet him as he makes his way into Jerusalem. As he makes his way into the city on that Sunday, there are hosannas, there are palm branches, there are, uh, there's Jesus riding on a donkey, all of this in fulfillment of these messianic prophecies and all pointing to the reality that Jesus truly is God's promised Messiah. And in the crowded streets leading into Jerusalem, again, all kinds of people, People that have counted the cost, as Jesus would teach about in Luke chapter 14. They have counted the cost. They have turned to Jesus for faith and salvation. They will follow Him to the very end. There are others who, they understand that God promised a Redeemer, that He promised a King, but they've misinterpreted the Scriptures, if you will. And all they can hope for and all they can see in Jesus is a king who will come and establish an earthly kingdom and finally, once and for all, get rid of these Roman Gentiles out of our land. And then there are still others. It draws us into the context of Luke 20 and verse 9 this morning. There are others gathered there who quite frankly and most directly, they just hate Jesus. They hate Him They want him dead. 
They have been dogging his steps throughout his ministry. They have been plotting. They have been scheming. And now as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he rides into their backyard, if you will. He's now on their turf. And all of the little small confrontations that have been taking place over the last three and a half years or so now, they all come together to, fi- to, to finalize this one confrontation whereby they will display their hatred of Christ by killing Him, nailing Him to a cross. Who, who is that group? Who are these people? They're the very ones, by the way, that they should have known and loved Jesus the most. As they had searched the Scriptures, these religious leaders of Israel, you read of them throughout the Gospel accounts, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish ruling body called the Sanhedrin, they are the ones, out of maybe everybody in Jerusalem, they are the ones that should have known Him and anticipated Him, and loved Him the best. But instead, they hate Him. They despise Him. He is a threat to the system which they have created, and they want Him gone. And so as God's plan of redemption, as it rapidly comes to fruition, this confrontation is inevitable. And so by the time you get to Luke 20, verse 9, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. It's now Monday of that holy week. Jesus, you recall, goes into the temple. He cleanses the temple of the money changers and the vendors and the religious leaders have had enough. And so they come to Jesus, hey man, by whose authority do you do these things? And I love the back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders He answers their question by asking another question that they just simply can't answer. And so because they're not able to answer his question, Jesus looks at them and says, I'm not going to answer your question either, for I am not the one on trial here today. It's actually you. It's actually you that have been found wanting before a holy God. And so instead of answering their petty questions, Jesus on that Monday of this holy week, he begins teaching in this very temple that he has just cleansed. And as he teaches, what is he going to do? Right off the bat, he's going to confront the sin. He's going to confront the wicked plans of these religious leaders and he's going to drive home this central reality into their hearts that though rejected, Jesus is God's beloved Son and precious cornerstone. And as such, Jesus is the foundation of God's people and the one who punishes All of his enemies. Jesus is going to look at his opponents and say to them, you're going to kill me, but you do not get the final word. You are going to kill me, but do not think, not even for a moment, that you can reject me, that you can sideline me, that you can get rid of me, and then somehow escape the wrath that is to come. Church family, as we begin our celebration of this holy, holy week, we find in today's text the absolute authority and the absolute necessity of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. As our memory verse for this month just told us, Jesus is God's only plan to save His people from their sins. And so therefore, Jesus will not be ignored today. Jesus will not be pushed off to the side. And to reject Him comes with the most grave and dire of consequences. Christian, for you in the room this morning, here's my hope for you that you rejoice. That you rejoice at the beginning of this glorious week. And that you remember that your life and that your salvation, it is built upon the precious cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, maybe you're not sure where you stand with the Lord, or maybe you know that you don't know Jesus as Savior. Here's our prayer for you this morning, is that you will understand the reality that no one can escape who rejects salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ that you would hear the call of the precious gospel this morning, and that you would be saved through Christ. Let's look at the text together, church family. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. And here's what I want to do. I want us to look at a couple of essential truths here. Two truths from Jesus' final days uh, on this earth. These final days of His ministry as He's teaching. What are the two truths in the text here for us. So number one, I want us to see together that though God's message is rejected, God continually pours out. God continually shows grace. So though God's message be rejected, though the messengers be rejected, God, in almost unexplainable fashion, pours out Continual grace upon His people. Look in verse 9. Jesus begins teaching in the temple here. and He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. Jesus begins to teach a parable, if you've read the gospel accounts, if you've been familiar with the teaching ministry of Jesus, it is often that Jesus will teach in parables so as to illustrate the big point to which he's driving at. A parable is a teaching tool which tells a short story in order to illustrate a deeper and spiritual reality. Usually, these parables would take common everyday people and common everyday events in common everyday settings in order to drive home kind of the big spiritual truth that Jesus wants his hearers to understand. Here in verse 9, as Jesus begins this parable, he's using imagery, he's using a setting that these Jewish people and the people that lived in this region, something that they would have been very familiar with. The setting is that of a vineyard. It's that of a vineyard, of a vineyard owner, and of vine growers who are charged with taking care of the owner's vineyard. Everywhere you go throughout this land flowing with milk and honey, you find these vineyards. It would have been a common experience For Jesus' hearers on this day to be walking along and to see vineyards and vine growers out there maintaining, 
keeping the vineyards. It would have been a common experience that they would have seen the vine growers reaping the produce, the grapes of these vineyards. But when Jesus begins teaching this parable in verse 9, their attention is going to be gripped not just because this is something that they see often in their days, but their attention is going to be gripped for another reason. Remember to whom Jesus is speaking. While there might be many who are gathered around in this moment, He is directing this moment of teaching to the religious leaders of the day. And as those, many of them who would have been students of the Scriptures, when Jesus mentions a vineyard, they would have been very familiar with the reality that throughout the Scriptures, that God's people Israel are often referred to as a vine or a vineyard. God's choice vine. God's choice vineyard. Throughout the Scriptures, God would often refer to Israel, His chosen people, in this way in order to show that they were choice and precious to Him. That He cared for her as the vine grower would care for the vineyard. And how then they would bear fruit and flourish under His tender care. In order to help us understand this, turn back to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm chapter 80. Just a couple places In the Old Testament where we see this language, God referring to His people as a vine or a vineyard. This is going to help sort of maybe the end of this parable make a lot of sense here in a moment. Psalm chapter 80, starting in verse 8. The psalmist recalls the past faithfulness of God and now calls upon God to rescue His people once again from their calamities Begins in verse 8, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. And you can follow that language out through the rest of that psalm, just that ongoing language of we're a choice vine. And then there's some question of God, why have you broken down the vineyard? Oh God, restore your choice vine and people. Turn over to Isaiah while you're in the Old Testament there. Isaiah chapter 5. Just a couple verses here. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Before God pronounces kind of some woes and judgments upon His rebellious people, He reminds them of who they really are and what He intended them to be. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning His vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Many other places, again, throughout the Old Testament are referring to God's chosen people, Israel, as Divine. And so when they hear Jesus beginning this parable in verse 9, there's a, a vineyard. Their minds would have begun to go to that place. And then Jesus mentions in this parable that in the vineyard there are vine growers. 
And so the arrangement between the vine owner and, and, and the vine growers would be something like this. I've planted the garden. I've given you everything you need here. Now come in here, work the, the vineyard for me. Take care of it, protect it, cultivate it, grow the fruit of it. You get some of the produce from this. And then most certainly when the harvest time comes, I as the landowner here, I get my share of this produce. And so that's the arrangement that would have been made. And so as they're hearing the parable, they understand how this works. These vine growers, they have several things that they are to be doing for the owner. They're, again, to keep it, to grow it, to cultivate it, to protect it, to remember that that vineyard does not ultimately belong to them. That vineyard ultimately belongs to the owner. To remember that there is a day coming when the owner will come and say, hey, the harvest time has happened. I would like now my share of this produce. And once again, here in verse 9, when Jesus mentions vine growers, their attention is going to be gripped once again. Not just because that's a familiar practice to them, but again, these religious leaders, they would have known the language of Scripture. That God always uses His caretakers to watch over His people. And so then, they're beginning to put some pieces together, even at the very beginning of this parable. They're remembering maybe passages like Isaiah chapter 5 that later on in Isaiah 5 it speaks of those who should have cared for God's vineyard, but instead they abused the vineyard and became drunk off of its produce. Maybe they remember a moment like Ezekiel chapter 33 where there is a stern rebuke against those that God had put in place as the watchman but some of them had neglected their duty. Or maybe a place like Ezekiel 34 where God had installed the shepherds of Israel, but they had been negligent in their duty to watch over God's people, but they had also abused God's people. And so for these vine growers, the religious leaders are maybe beginning to put some pieces together. I wonder if Jesus is talking about us in this moment. They are called to a particular duty in verse 9, but how will they respond? Will they be faithful? Will they care for the vineyard? Will they love and respect the owner? It's a question we have. Will they honor the terms of agreement? The parable continues, verse 10, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard, but... The vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Harvest time comes. The owner understands that it's time to reap what rightfully belongs to him. It's his vineyard after all. So he sends a servant. Hey, go down there to my vineyard and I want you to gather the produce that is just naturally mine. So he shows up and you get how this plays out in verse 10. The vine growers... They don't receive the message. Uh, they, they don't receive the messenger. They beat him. Uh, the word beat there in verse 10, it literally means to, to beat the flesh off of. So it's not just that they said a couple mean things to him. No, they, they, they really beat and abused 
this messenger. And sadly, in the place where the messenger should have been the most welcomed and the most received, he is the most rejected. All throughout the Scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament, we see God doing what? We see Him sending His messengers into the vineyard of Israel to proclaim the message, thus saith the Lord. But sadly, in the place where the prophets should have been the most received, they were the most persecuted. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16 says this, In the time of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Look what Jesus had to say about this. Turn back to Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23, again in this final week of his life. Look what Jesus says about the rejection of God's messengers. The rejection of the prophets. The rejection ultimately of God's message. Matthew 23, look down to verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Look down at verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. If you were to look over in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35-38, to 38, you would find a, a bloody testimony of the way that God's messengers and God's prophets had been treated throughout the centuries. Verse 10 of this parable is actually a shocking development. It is, it is actually outside the realm of logical thinking that vine growers would treat a servant of the vine owner in this way. This is shameful. Everybody understands the arrangements. Everybody understands that the vine growers are not ultimately the ones in charge and that that vineyard does not belong to them. And so then when they begin to beat and send away this servant of the owner, this is a shocking development. But it continues in verse 11. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also. Treated him shamefully. And sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one? Also, they wounded. Cast out. Messenger 1 comes back to the owner bloodied. Beaten. 
And the response of the owner is, let me send another one. We read back in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 that the Lord kept sending His messengers. Why? Because He had compassion on His people. Let me, let me send a second one. Surely, there's some kind of misunderstanding, right? Something didn't get communicated clearly. So I'll send the second one. The second one comes back bloodied and beaten. And the owner does what? He sends a third I want, you, I want you to go back into that, into that vineyard. I want you to get what is, what is mine. Time and time again, God's sending His messengers, even though they be mistreated, even though the message from God be rejected in God's compassion, He keeps sending messengers into the vineyard. Why? So that His people might receive grace kindness from the owner. Verse 13. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Three servants go in. Three servants come out bloodied bruised, black eyes. The owner still has not received any of the produce that is due unto him. Again, it's his vineyard. And so he begins to ponder, what, what am I supposed to do? What, what do I do with this? You might expect the text to read something like, you know, three strikes and you guys are out. Right? Like, I am done with you. You might expect that he sends in a small army to completely, utterly destroy them. You might expect anything except for what happens. I know what we'll do. I'll send them my son. Not just my son, my beloved son. And there can now be no mistaking what this parable is about, who the vineyard, the vineyard owner, the vine growers, and who the son are. Because when Jesus uses that language of beloved son, he is echoing the language of heaven, is he not? You recall that when he was baptized, Matthew 3, verse 17, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus would say to Nicodemus, earlier in his ministry in John chapter 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. At the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17, the voice comes out of heaven, this is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. So the owner in verse 13 says, I know what we'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they will respect my own flesh and blood. Maybe it's just that they've got some kind of misunderstanding about the relationship between me and my servant, but they cannot misunderstand the relationship between me and my son. And so I'll send my son to them. Verse 14. But when the vine growers saw him, They reasoned with one another, saying, 
this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. Do you see the absolute flawed logic in this? If I can just be so bold as to remind us that sin makes you stupid. It really makes you stupid. Hey, here comes the son. What do you guys want to do with him? Oh, I know. Let's do this. Let's kill him and, and surely we'll get the inheritance in, in that. This is unbelievably shocking in verse 14. It's one thing to beat the slaves. One, two, and then three. But the son? Surely, surely these vine growers understand that as the son walks into that vineyard, it is just as though the owner himself is standing there. But what they reason is, we can, we can kind of do an end around, and we can kind of sideline, even, let's just kill him. We can kill the son and still get where we want to be. We can get the inheritance here. In their sin-deluded state, they believe that they can kill the son and somehow get the inheritance. Verse 15, the beginning of verse 15, so they... They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. It's a pretty shocking conclusion to this parable. And in that moment, in verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus is foreshadowing in this moment what will happen in just about four days. When these religious leaders, the vine growers of Israel, where they will take the Son and they will drag Him outside the vineyard, if you will, and they will kill Him. And in so doing, they will justify themselves and their actions. They will wrongly believe that they have rid the people of Israel of this massive problem and they can get back to having this ironclad grip on the institution that they have built for themselves. In just a few days, early on a Friday morning, after a very long Thursday night, Jesus will bear His cross outside the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha's hill. He will suffer and die as Hebrews 13.12 says, outside the gate. As He does so, These vine growers, the religious leaders, and others who have rejected Jesus, they will delight in themselves and the power that they think they have regained. Time and time and time again, God sends His messengers with the message into His vineyard. And time and time and time again, those messengers and that message are beaten, mistreated, and rejected. Again, there's something in us, I think, that says, man, if I were the owner of this vineyard, the first time they did that to one of my servants, I would have absolutely brought the thunder on these guys. 
But time and time and time again, God pours out compassion and mercy and grace upon these people. And beloved, just so that we remember rightly where we fit into this parable, where we fit into the story, let's not think for a second that in the depravity of our own sin that we would have treated the messengers or the Son any better. We are those who have heard the message. We have ignored the message. We have rebelled against the message. We have sinned against a holy God. And everything, all logical sense says we should be destroyed. But praise God that the Gospel, that it just doesn't have to line up with logical sense. And that God sends us His Son. He sends us His Son. Oh, what grace upon grace upon grace is ours. Through the Son. And even though it is our sin that has nailed Him to the cross, even though it is our rebellion that has led Him to lay down His life and to suffer the wrath of God for us, in unthinkable grace, God brings us to Himself through the work of His Son. It is totally undeserved, and it is most certainly not earned. Though the message be rejected, God continually pours out grace. And then secondly, secondly, that though God's Son be rejected, He is both the foundation for His people and the judge of His enemies. Though the Son be rejected, the second part of this text, we find that He is both the foundation for His people, and the judge of His enemies. Look at the second half of verse 15. Jesus bringing the parable to a conclusion now asks this question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? They've killed the Son. You can't kill the Son Reject the Son, do away with the Son, and think that there's not going to be some recompense from God. Is God a God of grace? Absolutely. Absolutely He is. But there comes a day when for those who are not in Christ, those days and moments of grace come to an end. What Scripture repeatedly tells us is that when that happens, judgment and punishment comes. What will the owner do to these vine growers? Verse 16, He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. He will come, He will destroy them, and this little kingdom that they've built for themselves, This little vineyard 
that they've, you know, they've kind of been going along through the years and they've been shaping this thing and crafting this thing and putting themselves into places of authority and prominence, it will be taken away from them. Matthew's Gospel account of this says, and it will be given to others who bear the fruit of it. What does it mean in verse 16 when Jesus says that the owner will give the vineyard to others? Jesus means here that the Gospel would go forth outside of the land of Israel, outside of the descendants of Abraham, that it would go to the Gentiles, that they, not these Jewish religious leaders, would become the inhabitants of this vineyard. Jesus had stated earlier in His ministry, John chapter 10 and verse 16, that He came as a Savior for all mankind, for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He would say that I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they shall hear My voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. You, the religious leaders of Israel, the ones who received the oracles of God, the very Son of God, has been born into your people, in your land, but you have rejected, and so now here's the consequence. You are destroyed. This is taken away from you and now given to another people to be the inhabitants of it. And what is their response in verse 16? When they heard it, they said, may it never be, Jesus. There cannot be a stronger refusal and negation in their tongue. This is the strongest denial that they can give. Absolutely not. No way. It will never come to pass in that way, Jesus. It is unthinkable to these religious leaders that God would judge them so harshly and give the vineyard to others. They are completely self-justified and they do not think that they should suffer any consequences for the mistreatment of the Son. They wrongly believe that because they are the, 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 the descendants of Abraham, that this land was given to them by the promise of God, that it doesn't matter how they live or what they do with the Son. For all of their study of the Scriptures, they have missed it completely. And what they missed about Jesus is that when He rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday, a declaration is being made. And that declaration is this, you cannot reject the Son and receive the inheritance. You cannot reject Jesus and receive the inheritance. The King is here. And if you desire to be a part of His kingdom, you must receive Him completely. For He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You do not get to ignore the King 
and think somehow that He's going to let you be a part of the kingdom. You don't get to hear the king tell you, this is how the inhabitants of my kingdom live, and then say, no, I'm going to be a part of the kingdom, but I'm going to to live how I want to live. I'm going to do me. cannot reject the Son. But in their self-righteousness, this is unthinkable. Jesus, you're crazy. It'll never happen. Verse 17. But Jesus looked at them. The verb look there means He gazed intently at them. What must that look have been like? But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. Tell me then, guys, what is this? Psalm 118, verse 22, Jesus is quoting here. What does this mean? I would imagine it grows deathly quiet in that moment. As Jesus refers to Himself there in verse 17 as the stone which the builders rejected but has now become the chief cornerstone. That that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. What does that mean? Church, here's what this means for you. It means that He is the foundation of your salvation. That you are saved by Him and through Him. And that if your life is built upon Him, you are safe and secure. It means that God's kingdom is built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. It means that God's church is built upon the precious cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Peter would declare, 1 Peter, that Christ, the Son of the living, uh, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not in 1 Peter, but in the Gospels you recall when Jesus would ask that question, who do people say that I am? That's Peter's response. Jesus would tell him upon that declaration God will build His church. And so then in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Christ is the cornerstone of the church. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, He is the one upon whom your very life is built, O saints. Church, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that Sunday for that final week of His life, He goes to lay down His life And He goes to be laid down as the chief cornerstone upon which God saves His people and builds His church. Christian, be encouraged this morning that because, though rejected by some, Christ remains and will forever remain your sure foundation. And that you cannot, you cannot be shaken from that precious and chief cornerstone. If your life is rooted in Him, let let whatever is going to come, let it come. 
whatever trials and whatever sorrows and whatever temptations and struggles. It will come, but you are safe if you are in Christ. One Baptist pastor from the 1600s, Benjamin Keach, what comfort may this afford to all such that are truly built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Such churches are precious churches. And such souls are blessed souls. Their state is happy and their standing is sure. Are you built upon Christ? Finally, just verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. One cannot reject Jesus and expect not to be crushed and punished, judged by Him. Though God's Son be rejected, He is both the foundation for His people and the judge of His enemies. There are two kinds of people in the room right now. Frankly, there are only two kinds of people out of all 8 billion people that inhabit this planet. There's two kinds of people. Those whose life is built upon the Son or those who will be crushed by the Son. And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that final Sunday, that's essentially the declaration that's being made and the question that is being asked. Are you built upon Him or do you stand as one who will be crushed by Him? You cannot reject the Son and think that you're going to escape the wrath to come. And so Christian, as you embark in your celebration on this week, I am praying and trusting and hoping for you that it's a joyful week of celebration. And that if you are in Christ, that you become daily just encouraged of God's grace to you in Christ and that your life is built on Him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not sure where you stand with Him. There's only two options. You're either built upon Him or crushed by Him. Would you come to Christ today before it's too late? Would you turn to Christ in repentance of your sin? Commit to follow Him? To live for Him? To honor Him? To bow the knee before Him? Would you join your own Hosanna with that of the people on that Palm Sunday? Save now. Save now. If you would call upon the name of the Lord this day, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, at the beginning of this really special week, our remembrance and celebration of the work of Christ in those final days of His life, particularly His death on the cross and resurrection on the third day, God, we're drawn in by the teaching of Christ to the reality that
cannot reject the Son and somehow think to escape the wrath to come. God, for the church this morning, for those who are in Christ, God, I pray that they would just be so encouraged. Maybe they came in discouraged. Maybe they came in and, and, and were sorely tempted, even this morning. God, maybe they've had a week of struggle. Maybe they've had a week of doubt. Maybe they've had a week of, of, of just weak faith. God, would you remind them this morning that by your grace in Christ, that they are built upon the foundation of Christ, Father, because they have uh, received your grace, responded to it, O oh God, by receiving Christ, that their life is safe and secure. That their identity is Christ. That their life is hidden with Christ. That they are adopted to Christ's family. That they are in union with Christ. But God, would you also, in a moment of Spirit-given clarity, oh God, would you speak into the heart of the one that doesn't know Christ? God, would you show them the necessity and the authority of Christ from your word? God, that you would humble them. God, that you would break away the hardness of their heart before the day of judgment when Christ comes again as the judge of the universe. And brings forth judgment and punishment upon all who are not His. Oh God, break their pride now so that they will not be eternally crushed. God, show them that You crushed Your Son so that they wouldn't have to be. God, again, we ask Your Spirit to move in our hearts to cause the scriptures to come alive so that we would believe so that we would respond God so that you would be honored and glorified in our lives it's in Christ's name that we pray these things amen